I hope you have your Bibles. If not, there should be one around you, and I invite you to take it and open to Matthew chapter 7. Should be notes inside of your, your handout there, so I encourage you to follow along there as well. This morning we are picking up where we, we stopped last week. Last week we started something that we did not finish. And so this morning we are going to continue where we, where we left off. As you find your way to Matthew 7, I want to remind you of two things that you already know. The first is this. That the Christian life is a life that's meant to be lived together in, in community. We talk about this a lot. That the Christian life, is, it's not meant to be lived alone. And when we come to Christ, we are, we are adopted into the family of God. And it's God's plan that, that as his children and as his family, we would live life with one another. And so we have these one another commands in Scripture, right? Serve one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Learn together. Do the work of God together, right? Make the gospel known. The scriptures are clear that the Christian life, it's, it's meant to be lived not alone, not in isolation, but, but in community. And that's the first thing. I think, I think we know this, right? Here's the second thing. Living in community can be hard. And it can be messy. It's messy. Here's why. Because we're sinners. And guess what sinners do? We sin, and, and sometimes that sin is directed towards one another. There are times when we think more of ourselves than we ought to think. And there are times when we struggle to love others the way we should. The reason I'm bringing these things up is because as we come back to Matthew chapter 7 this morning, what we have here is Jesus helping us see one of the, the main things that can divide us. One of the main things that can keep us from living together as the people of God, as we ought, one of the main things that could separate us is this sin of judgmentalism. If you were with us last week, you'll remember we started in chapter 7 and we considered two things. We considered a command, and we considered a warning. The command that we considered was, was, was judge not. And we spent most of our time talking last week about what that means and, then, and also what it, what it does not mean. Because when Jesus said, don't judge, he wasn't saying that we should ignore sin. He wasn't saying that we should ignore false teaching and it doesn't mean that we should avoid hard conversations. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't call things out that aren't true. But this verse, Matthew 7, 1, it often gets quoted as kind of a trump card, right? We, we talk to someone about their sin or we talk to someone about a way they've erred. And, and the, the, the response is, well, remember what Jesus says. He says, judge not. So last week we worked out some of the nuance and we recognized that what Jesus is telling us to avoid, really, is self-righteousness. He's speaking against this attitude of the heart that's quick to accuse and to condemn and 
that comes without humility or gentleness. He's commanding us against critiques, not critiques in general, but critiques that are made without a desire to show love. It's a command against pride and condemning hearts that are quick to punish without any view towards restoration. Like I said, it it boils down to self-righteousness, which isn't that exactly what we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calling out the scribes and the Pharisees for. This this attitude of of self-righteousness, seeing themselves as the standard, calling out the sins and failings of others without any regard for their own sin. And so can you see how this command fits within the context of the Sermon on the Mount? He's been saying, don't live like the hypocrites. And here's another mark of how they lived. They were marked by self-righteous judgmentalism. So now he says to his people, don't be like that. That was the command we considered last week. And then the command was followed by a warning. The warning is that as we judge others, we should know that we will be judged by God. Just look at the verse there again. He says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And, and, and we, we discussed last week that this is a reminder that we live in the, in the presence of God. We live before the face of God and that God disciplines those he loves. And one day we will stand before him and give an account. It's a significant warning to those who would continue to live in unrepentant self-righteousness and judgmentalism. So that that was last week, this command and, and warning. And Jesus could have stopped there. There's lots of times in the Gospels when he he gives a quick command and then he moves on. And yet in this case, he goes on. He he, he unpacks it and helps us see the the hypocrisy, the danger of living this way. This wasn't the plan to spend two weeks here. The plan was to get through six verses last week. But And I told Michelle, I may have regretted stopping because... Is there enough left for our time together this morning? The more I've considered it, the more I'm really glad that we have this this time because this can significantly impact the way we interact with one another, can't it? It's important that we know the difference. There's there's a difference, friends, between self-righteous judgmentalism and God-honoring accountability. We need to know that difference. There's a difference between sinfully judging and critiquing and lovingly confronting and correcting. If we group them all together and we read Matthew 7, 1, then then we decide that we can't do any of it, right? So we have to to know the difference. The question becomes, here's, here's the question I want us to consider. How do we avoid judgmentalism and still do the one another's that God has called us to do? We're told to correct, to admonish, to encourage, to exhort, to call, us, call out false teaching. So how do we reconcile all those commands with the command to judge not? 
as we keep moving through the text, Jesus helps us to consider these things more carefully. So we are in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read again those first six verses. So I hope you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Last week, we mentioned that Matthew 7.1 is one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible. Also the most perhaps misunderstood but it's, it's used often. Along the same lines, this metaphor of logs and specks gets a lot of attention. And I always want to say this when we come to a passage like this, a familiar passage of Scripture. I just want to remind you, let's not let familiarity keep us from hearing what Christ is saying. It's an important passage, and I think it's important for us as a church. It impacts the way we live together. If we hear this well, it could strengthen us. But if, on the other hand, we don't hear and obey, we could be putting ourselves and the glory of God and what he's brought us together for in jeopardy. I was reminded of that in particular this week when I, when I read again what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. We actually we quoted it together earlier. Listen to this. Paul says, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this. Here's the other, here's the alternative. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Think about that in the context of being a judgmental type people. He says, love one another, which will include admonishing one another, correcting one another. But if we do it apart from love, if we do it out of self-righteousness, he says, you're going to consume each other. I think we have to recognize the danger. And how important it is to learn the difference between loving confrontation and sinful judgment. So as not to consume one another. Again, it's important that we sort out and hear what Christ is saying. So here's the question. How do we become a people who are marked by love for one another and not by biting and devouring? How do we guard ourselves from consuming one another. Well, Jesus gives us this picture. Like I said, it's a picture that's familiar to you. Starting in verse 3, we have this picture of someone who has something in their eye, 
a speck or a splinter of wood, and of course it's affecting their vision. It's a problem. And if you've had something in your eye, let's all, let's all admit, it's a problem, right? We don't, we don't want to leave it there. It needs to be addressed. So this is the picture. There's a brother or a sister who has something in their eye, and you can see it, and you're determined, I want to help that brother. But, but here's the problem. You've got not a splinter, but, but a log protruding from your eye. Just give yourself that image, all right? Just forget the metaphors. Just picture a big honking log, right? Jutting out and hitting everyone you come close to. They all see it. Who cannot see it? Except what Jesus says is, you've missed it yourself. This is a situation that's not going to go well because you're about to go to this person and try to do the delicate work of speck removal, but you can't see clearly, and you're probably going to knock them on their back by the log that's coming out of your eye. Look at it again. He says, why do you see that speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your own eye, when there is a log in your own? What's the issue? Let's not forget our context. What's the issue that Jesus is dealing with here? He's dealing with the sin of, of judgment and self-righteousness and condemning others. And this is how deceitful sin can be. We can see the problem in another person's life. You know, you see the problem in your spouse's life so clearly, right? You, you see the problem in your neighbor's life. You see the problem in everyone else's and it may be a real problem. But we're completely blind to our own struggle. We're completely ignoring the massive issues of our own soul. And so what Jesus is describing here is there's something small, not insignificant, but small in another person's eye, but you've missed the log in your own. And I think if we're paying attention to the context, to what Jesus is doing here, we have to see that so often the log isn't some sin unrelated to their sin? It seems most obvious here that the log we're most often dealing with is self-righteousness. This huge log that so many of us have in our eye is pride and self-deception because we've decided that our good is really good. And our bad, not really that bad. But their good is severely lacking. And their bad is as bad as it gets. It's a temptation, isn't it? To have one standard for ourselves and another standard for others. Holding other people to a higher standard than we would ever hold ourselves to. And we end up with this skewed perspective. Anytime we think about our own sin, we are so quick to quote 1 John 1, 9. If, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but we are not as quick to give that command to a friend to believe it for them, to believe that they can be changed. We can be hyper aware of their struggle and decide that it needs to be dealt with today. And, and we, we put it under this, this banner of, I hate sin. But if we truly hate sin, church, 
we will hate our own sin first and most. But this is where the sin of judgmentalism and self-righteousness blinds us. We have this eye examiner who's completely oblivious to his own eye problems. And we're all tempted this way. And what Jesus gives us here is a warning against hypocrisy. And I, I, I want to keep pushing this. I, I think it's more subtle than we tend to think. I was wrestling with this this week because I think in the past, I've often read this passage and seen it as a very one-to-one -one thing. I'll try to explain. Um, we have a brother who's, who's angry and struggles with the sin of anger. Then there's other person who comes along and calls out their anger, but person number two is the truly anger, angry person, right? And so they've got a little anger problem. This guy's got a big anger problem. So big angry person should not be confronting little angry person. And that's, that's a fine application. That's true. You can think of it as going to tell someone you should be more generous all, all the while being a very selfish and stingy person yourself. In these examples, there's this one-to-one -one correlation, and, and that's certainly a fine application of the text. But the more I considered this, it seems to me that more often than not, the log is not the equivalent or the same sin. It's not a one-to-one. -one. But that log is this attitude of judgmentalism and self-righteousness. So we look at that angry person and say, I would never get angry like that. I would never lose control of my emotions the way they do. I can't believe how angry they get over such small things. And do you see how subtly we've moved out of concern for sin or the dishonoring of the name of God into self-righteousness and judgmentalism? It's not necessarily that we're calling people out for something that we're doing also, although that's a problem as well. The more subtle sin is that we're living in pride and self-righteousness. It's this huge log sticking out of our eye. And we feel justified because we're doing the work of God. We're standing up for truth. We're righting the wrongs. I think it's important for us just to hear the warning from Jesus that we might be like that person who sees a speck and yet has a log. The question becomes, how do we avoid living that way? How do we guard against this self-righteousness and hypocrisy? Well, the answer is we, we, we must, friends. We have to be so aware of our hearts. We have to be willing to look in the mirror and deal with ourselves first. Jesus says there in verse 5, hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first. Before we worry about the sin of those around us, we need to be willing to confess our own sins. If we truly hate sin, we will hate sin when we see it in ourselves. And if we truly love righteousness, we will want more than anything to develop righteousness in our own lives first. I do you think this is a general call from God to examine every part of our lives I want to go back to this again, because I do think this is where maybe we've been slow to see the deceitfulness of sin. Anytime we're in a situation where we see the need to help, 
the first thing we must consider is, what's my motivation? We need to ask ourselves, am I concerned about their sin because I love God and want him to be honored? Or am I eager to call out their sin so that it points a certain kind of light on me? Is it really about helping that other person or is it about gaining some kind of recognition for myself? Painting myself in a certain light. Or maybe, and this seems a little more sinister, but we've probably all been there at some point, where we're motivated deep down by wanting to see that person put in their place. Eager to deal with their sin, not really to help them, but to humiliate them. The point is, there are all kinds of logs that we might have sticking out of our eyes. The log of self-righteousness, the log of pride, the log of bitterness, the log of jealousy, the log of a vindictive spirit. Sin can be subtle, can't it? Because I would never sin the way they've sinned. I would never do the things they've done. And yet what's welling up in us, not a recognition of the gospel of God, but self-righteousness. So before we go and try to help a brother get that speck out of his eye, we must check our own. Because if we have strong feelings about the sins of others, but we are indifferent or blind towards our own, we are living, Jesus says, as hypocrites. And we know how he speaks of hypocrites. So the first thing to be done is log removal. To go back to where we started, I hope you see how essential this is for our life together as a church. If we want to be effective, if we want our church to be long-lasting and to have an impact for beyond us, we must do the hard work of ex hard examination. Think about, think about what we do together in life groups. Just get really practical for a minute. We've set aside time once a month for us all to get together, to encourage, to admonish, to exhort. But if we show up to life groups and see the specks in everyone else's eyes, and we're not at the same time keeping a watch on our own hearts, then we will never be a help to those around us. That is fertile ground for pride. That's the kind of place where self-righteousness thrives. So if we come in to a setting like that, not aware of our own need and not ready to examine our own hearts, who are we but the Pharisee? Remember the story of, of Christ or that Christ gives where there's the Pharisee and the tax collector? There's the Pharisee standing by himself and prays, God, I, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. So here's a man, by his testimony, he doesn't steal. He deals fairly with people. He's faithful to his wife. He fasts regularly. He gives what he's supposed to give. So what's the log in his eye? Self-righteousness. Friends, man, God forbid we, we come in and we sit together and we interact with one another as the Pharisee because 
we hate sin and we love the truth. But do we hate it in ourselves? And do we long to live by it ourselves? It may not be, church, that we're ignoring massive immorality. But we may have the log of self-righteousness and judgmentalism sticking out our eye and hitting everyone we come into contact with. The prayer should be that we would be like that tax collector who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This should be the first response. The prayer of a person who sees themselves clearly and knows they need mercy first. So the first thing we have to consider is log removal. We can never be who God has called us to be if we don't get that log out of our eye first. But there's, there's more to the passage. First, there's log removal, and then there's speck removal. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to correct and admonish and restore. We have a responsibility, friends, towards one another. We can see in this passage, yes, log removal is essential. But once we've done that, there is the follow-up work of speck removal. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take that speck out of your brother's eye. We shouldn't overlook this. That speck, that, that split, that needs attention too. We shouldn't read this and think, oh, it's not a log, it's probably fine. No, the Bible is clear. We should not be comfortable with any sin in our lives. And if you actually have a splinter in your eye, you know this, is, this needs to be dealt with. It's a problem. But think about the picture. Think about the kind of care that's needed to get something out of somebody's eye. Let's not, not lose it in metaphor. Think about how, how delicate a process that is. It's not something you want to do blindfolded. It's not something you want to do if you can't see well. So we have to make sure that if we're going to do the spec work, we've done the log work first. And then once we move into spec removal, let's, let's remember that there are maybe no other parts of our body that's as sensitive as our eye. You can't just jump in and start digging around. It's gentle, careful work. And this is the way the Bible talks about handling a brother or sister who's in sin. This is Galatians 6.1. It's an important passage when we think about this. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Here's the situation. There's a brother or a sister, and they're trapped in sin. And, and Paul says, we have a responsibility towards that person. The call is restoration, not judgment, not humiliation, not shunning, not anger towards them. Paul says, restore that person. And then he says, restore them this way. Do it this way. In a spirit of gentleness. How do we cultivate a spirit of gentleness? towards those who are in sin. Does it not start with recognizing our own need? Our own sinfulness? 
Part of restoring with gentleness means remembering that we are all sinners in, needs of, in need of forgiveness. It's preaching the gospel to ourselves and remembering I'm the same kind of sinner they are. And I would want to deal with them the way that Christ has dealt with me. And this is where I think historically Christians and the church have often blown it. First, we don't start with log removal. And second, we don't go after the speck with gentleness. We rush in under the, under the banner of hatred for sin and love for the truth, and we forget that restoration is supposed to be gentle. Yeah, hate the sin, love the truth, and go to your brother in gentleness. Restoration is not meant to push others down, but to build them back up. So often we think, I'm the one, I need to avenge the wrong. Paul says, gently restore. Getting back to the imagery of Matthew 7, the picture of a brother who has a speck or a splinter in his eye. What does that look like to get that out? My former pastor used this illustration a lot, and I think I've even shared it with you before. But the idea of what, what would we do what, if, if Graham comes to me and he's got a splinter in his eye, what am I going to do? One, one thing I could do is to take a drop, a, like an eyedropper, right? Get some water in it and hold up his eye and, and gently drip that water in his eye to try to flush it out, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gently hold his eye open and I'm going to just gently just get some water in there and try to, to wash it out. That would be a picture of, of gentle restoration. What we're tempted to, however, is to be frustrated with our brother who's in sin, mad that they have a speck in their eye, and intent on getting it out today. So here's, here's the strategy. I'm going to hook up a fire hose. They need water in their eye, right? So I'm going to hook up this fire hose. They're not going to like that. So I'm just going to hide. And as soon as they walk in the door, I'm going to fire that water. I'm going to blast them in the face. I'm going to get the splinter out. I've got my truth cannon ready. Under the banner of getting the splinter out, we ambush them. We shoot truth. And all we end up with is a brother who's wet and hurt and angry and has a speck still stuck in his eye. Friends, it's important how we seek to restore one another. Gentle restoration is not hurried or harsh. It's patient and persevering. And the goal is love. Not judgment, not shame, not punishment. The goal is loving a brother or sister enough that we will go to whatever lengths is necessary. We'll stand there with that eyedropper of truth, gently dropping it as long as we need because our care is for that brother. But of course, as we come back to the main point, the, the gut reaction is not gentleness, but self-righteousness. We just think about where we've been so far in this text. We've had the, the command to remove the log, the warning against hypocrisy. 
the responsibility of speck removal and the work of restoration. We come to the end of verse 5, and maybe it seems like that should be kind of the end of that passage. Then we get verse 6. I would suggest it's part of this, and I think our ESV publishers have done well by kind of putting it in the same paragraph. He says this, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So last week we talked quite a bit about what judgment is and what judgment is not. One of the things we said is that when Jesus says judge not, he's not saying don't use discernment. He's not saying never be critical. He's not saying to ignore sin. And he's not saying to avoid someone who's in sin or to avoid going to them rather. There is a place for a kind of judgment, isn't there? And I think we get that balance here in in verse 6. Jesus calling for discernment. There's a lot of metaphors here. It's not an easy verse. Jesus is referring to some people as dogs and other people as pigs. And and just just to be clear, these aren't terms of endearment. He's not talking about cute puppies and cuddly pink pigs. No, dogs and pigs were scavengers. They were animals that people avoided. Remember, according to the Old Testament, pigs were unclean, not to be eaten or touched. He's using harsh language here when he refers to people as dogs and pigs, not compliments. Judgmentalism? Is it? Who are these people? Well, based on the verse, these are people who won't accept the things of God. They've rejected what is holy. They've trampled pearls, and they're ready to attack those who who brought the pearls. Why would you give pigs pearls? Well, this is another metaphor that Christ uses later in Matthew. Remember that short parable of the man who, who finds that pearl of great value. And Jesus says that pearl represents the kingdom of God. And that man sold everything he had to get that pearl. I think what he's referring to here when he talks about pearls, it's the, it's the message of the kingdom. It's the message of the gospel. And here what we see is that there are some people that when we bring the message of the gospel, not only do they reject it, but they hate it. And they hate the one who brought it. To use the metaphor, they trample it over it like pigs. And they turn to attack the one who brought them. It's a wild metaphor. Just I'm going to read the verse one more time. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. He's calling for a measure of discernment. Now in verse 5, we're told that we should go to a brother who's, or sister who's in sin. We should, we should go to them. But now he tells us there is a group of people who won't accept our efforts. Even if we were to come to them in in love and gentleness with the gospel or, or, or with the truth, there will be some who will hate us for it. Some will hear the message of the gospel and scoff and mock. Some who we will come to them with love and for care, with care for their souls, and they will want to do us harm. They'll love their sin and hate anyone who suggests a need for change. They may tell us, judge not. I think we can all picture the situation. A person who's hostile to the truth, who mocks and scoffs at any need 
What Jesus is telling us here, I believe, is that there does come a point when we trust that person to God. Now, let's balance this. Do we always stop at the moment of resistance? Now, there, there's lots of examples in Scripture of going hard, long ways for the sake of the gospel, of pursuing a brother or a sister who's in sin for a long, patient time. And yet there's this in other places where we're told that at times we should entrust them to God. Matthew 10, for example, said Jesus, this is when he's sending out his disciples to go and to, to preach the message of the kingdom. And he tells them, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet and leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for them than for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying there's a time to move on. And we see an example of this played out by Paul in Acts 18. We read that Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, and Paul was occupied with the word. Isn't that what we should be? Occupied by the word, the preaching of the gospel, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And they opposed and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left. I'll give you one more. That one's more about preaching the gospel to unbelievers. But there's also passages that speak about going to believers who may be resistant or those who have claimed to be believers. Titus 3, he says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then warning him twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. Interesting passages that probably deserve more attention. But just to get this big perspective and to put it down in the context of Matthew 7, he has said, judge not, get the log out of your own eye, but there is a place for going to that brother or sister who has a speck, and there's also times when you will go to them and you will present the truth and they will reject you. And there's a classification for those folks as well. Once we've dealt with our own hearts and motives, we should go to those who need correction and reproof. And at times that brother will be restored and there will be rejoicing. Other times they will be resistant and we will mourn. And Jesus acknowledges both of these situations. But don't miss this. God cares about our hearts, and he cares about the way we deal with one another. I want to end where we started. I told you at the beginning that God has called us to live life alongside of one another. We have a responsibility to one another. We're called to help one another in the pursuit of Christ. And there will be times, if we exist together for any length of time, when we must confront one another. Help a brother or sister see their need for repentance. And if we do those things well, friends, that will grow the one helped and grow the one who has helped.
we are sinners living with sinners. And as we walk together, we must be aware of these commands to put off judgmentalism, to recognize the extent to which we are accountable to God, to notice our propensity for hypocrisy and self-righteousness, to have a close watch on our hearts, to be quick to take the log out of our own eye and gentle in our efforts to help others, asking God all along the way to bring them back to a place of full fellowship. We ended last week talking about preaching the gospel to ourselves. In this passage, we have this underlying theme that we are sinners, all of us, prone to sin, all of us. But we've all been called to fight sin and to help one another in that fight. What we must recognize is that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness. Which means you don't have to live in self-righteousness. You don't have to live with a judgmental heart. You can take that log out and have full sight and help others to be, have clear eyes. If you felt conviction this morning because you know you've been that person with the log, friend, Jesus died so you can be forgiven. And if you have a brother or sister who's living in sin, and they've been hanging on to that speck for years, and you don't understand why. Christ died so that they too can be forgiven. So don't give up hope. Through Christ, we can all be forgiven and restored. My prayer is that God would use this to make us a people who see ourselves rightly, who see our complete need for him, and to live with our eyes open to our own need of forgiveness so that we can see clearly and help well those around us who are in need. If you're here and you're a sinner and you don't know Christ, we aren't here to judge you, but we do want you to know that there is a judge to whom you will give an account. If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you will be forgiven. No more judgment and no condemnation. So friends, let's be faithful to preach the gospel to ourselves, to live in the freedom of Christ, and to proclaim the hope of forgiveness to others. Not to live in judgment of the world around us, but eager to share the hope of salvation that comes through Christ. It's what we need. It's what the world needs. Let's be faithful. Let's pray together.